Let me tell you a story, podcast number 123. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, it was the age of never mind it is a truth how long we saw You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. For this podcast, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Steve is going to interview me about my latest book series, um, my fiction series, and um, he'll ask me questions, and I'll try to answer them. So we're going to start with me reading the back cover blurb for the first book in the Prisoners of Hope series, and the first book is titled Shattered Dream. Singer-songwriter Cassie True enters a rehab program that promises to change her life, and it does, in ways she never expected. Caught in a religious cult's ever-constricting web, she fights not only for her sanity, but for the freedom to form real friendships. She longs to put alcoholism behind her, finish the program, and resume her career. But when her friend is forcibly separated from her husband by the cult leader and a young boy is abused at the cult's elementary school, she can't stand by and do nothing. Bucking the system is dangerous and could result in dismissal from the program and a return to jail. Can Cassie and her co-worker, Corbin Dahlstrom, tow the party line yet work together behind the scenes to help others escape the cult's clutches? Will they be able to withstand the fiery backlash that's sure to come? Does their budding romance have a chance in a world where an iron-fisted leader controls all relationships? Well, that blurb tells us about this series. I'm going to back up and ask about your previous fiction series, the Kate Nielsen series. It addressed human trafficking, and this series deals with religious cults. They're both heavy topics. Is that intentional, or did they just happen to come to mind as you were writing and somehow fit into your story? Well, I suppose it's a combination of things. One is what I'm interested in at the time that I'm writing a series. When I was doing the Kate Nielsen series, um, you and I both were involved with an organization kind of a citywide organization that was helping set up a network for uh, trafficking victims in the area. And so we met with people from kind of all areas of services, might be the word to use, and people who wanted to set up services. Uh, So we were we were not a part of setting up any services, but we just were kind of a steering committee, I suppose you could say. So that was on my mind when I was writing that series. However, it started years earlier. <laughs> and it was when I was in 
prison ministry in another state that I got interested in writing about women who have been incarcerated um, because I realized the first night I was there that those are ladies just like me, just circumstances of life and poor choices and it just all created <laughs> the perfect storm for them to end up behind bars. And that, I'd been struggling to find just the right heroine for my first book. And one night, driving home from prison ministry, I realized, wow, I know who that person should be. So that, the combination of that um, ex-inmate and our trafficking concerns um, just kind of all came together in that particular series. And then in this one, the Prisoners of Hope series, we have known over the years people in a variety of cultic situations, whether it was a woman we knew that married later in life and she'd been independent for, say, 30, 35 years, and then uh, she married a guy a little bit older than she was, and I think he had been married a couple times before. But this was the first marriage for her. And one Saturday afternoon, while he was taking a nap, she needed a couple things for fixing supper. So she walked down to the corner store and grabbed him, and when she came back, he was livid. He had awakened, and she wasn't there. And he raked her over the coals and told her never leave the house again without his permission. So I'd call that a one-person cult or one leader, one follower. We've known people like that, people in really huge cults, and then um, in between. And, and then there are situations, in fact, we've been in at least one that comes to mind. We were in a multi-level group in another state. And as we were moving, the leader of that group, who had actually helped us pack, if I remember right, and he, as he was helping Steve with the final aspects of the move, tried desperately to talk him out of moving. Now, obviously, he wasn't violent about it, but just there was a control aspect there that was just kind of weird. Another situation was when we were part of a church where the pastor and the treasurer were the best of buddies. And um, the pastor had direct access to the church money. And so if he wanted new tires, new suits, <laughs> it wasn't just one, I remember. It was multiple suits. Oh, and I don't know. Remember what else? Just... It was just pretty handy to have your best bud be the church treasurer. Yeah, and his kind of fancy car, um, luxury car. Right, that needed Pirelli tires, right? right? Nothing less. So that was a situation where um, both of them were nice people. But I don't know what happened to that group because we moved shortly after. Um, but just that ability to control what he should not have been controlling. 
And there were other things that happened there that were red flags. But So those are just examples from our own life. And uh, just a curiosity, you know, talking to several friends and then people I interviewed for the series, plus reading all kinds of books and watching documentaries. It's amazing how prevalent cults are, whether they're religious or not. You know, many people oftentimes think of satanic groups as that's a cult, but it's so much more than that. And anyway, just wanted to pull that all together. And the first series was to let people know that human trafficking is prevalent in the United States. It's not just in Indonesia or Thailand or very present in America, uh, sad to say. And the same with cults. Um, They originate in America and go out to the world and vice versa. They originate in other countries and come into America and it's extremely easy to get caught up in one. It could be the family next door or it could be the church down the street. At a couple of times, we've been close to becoming involved in organizations that we found out then uh, quickly. They wanted you to speak a certain way, say certain words, uh, address them in certain ways, and tell you what to wear. You know, just a lot of control. Yeah, you never know who, and you want to get out before you're in. How did you come up with the title of the series? The title of the series, Prisoners of Hope, comes from the Bible, which is just a cool phrase from Zechariah 9.12. This is just a small portion of the verse, but I feel like it's very fitting for the series. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. And the reason I feel it's fitting is that we all have hope. We hope that that we won't burn dinner or that the when we're painting the bedroom wall that it will turn out to be the color we hope <laughs> that the can says it is or the swatch. <laughs> um, but a prisoner of hope, I feel fits this title because these people are controlled by the leadership of a group, but there's that hope, the hope they went in with, that this is going to be nirvana, that this is this is the answer to all the world's problems. And that hope is quickly snuffed when they get in deep enough to realize that it's the group is not at all what they expected it to be. But yet there's always that little tiny flame flickering at the back of their mind, hoping that maybe not that life in the cult will get better, but that they'll escape it. Someday there will be an end to this, that this won't last forever. Some people do give up hope in cultic situations and maybe commit suicide or just check out and live in a zombie-type state. And we know some of each. In book one, Shattered Dream, your main character is in jail. How did you create her, and why did you start with the jail scene? 
It kind of feels like cheating because I started the first series in prison or with a heroine getting out of prison. But the reason for this particular heroine beginning her story in a jail setting is because cults, whether religious or otherwise, take advantage of vulnerable people. And somebody just getting out of jail is hoping for a new and better life and starting over. And with this particular group in the story, they have a rehabilitation program associated with the church. So that's the hope that this is what's going to change her life and make everything better. I know of one person who got into a cult very quickly, like over a weekend, because he'd just broken up with his girlfriend and was feeling pretty down on himself. And these girls from this group, like, sounds like it was several, approached him and you know made him feel special again. Others have gone through difficult divorces, an even more serious breakup that's shattered their lives. Um, others maybe financially at the bottom or just can't make it out in the world. They can't find that perfect job. Um, are kind of at loose ends. Cult leaders just look for people who are looking for help and who are very vulnerable. I have one friend who had just moved to a new town and didn't know a soul. And she'd come from a small town where she knew everybody, plus all her family was there. So she was very lonely in this town. And not long after she arrived, she heard a knock on the door, and two sweet ladies were there to welcome her. And they, they made her feel at home in that town and welcome, and they came back two or three other times before she was sucked into the group. And each time they brought her a little gift, and that just helped her feel just a little bit more special each time. How did you come up with the title, Shattered Dream? Oh, titles, they're always a challenge. I think I first started brainstorming the, all the titles for this series with our family in California over, oh, I think we were in a Mexican restaurant, so over tacos or whatever. We just threw out ideas and, and maybe even cover ideas to go with them, but we brainstormed and then I brainstormed with my critique group, and I can't tell you if I ever chose any of those names that we came up with in those sessions, but I can tell you that those kinds of back-and-forth, give-and-take experiences really spark the juices, and they're very fun. I always enjoy them, and hope nobody's insulted if I don't choose their name. But it gets my mind more honed in on what the story is about or how to you know, encapsulate it in a title. And so that's a long way to say... It was a process. I know you did a bunch of research for this book, but I have to say, at places in the book, the story seems pretty wild at times, and I wonder how much of it is true and how much of it is fiction. Well, it's all fiction, <laughs> because it came out of my head, and I took facts that were told to me by people who had escaped controlling situations. 
um, and many of them were very, very similar, but each one had kind of their own um, unique craziness. Um, so I'd take two or three things from each group, but the characters are totally fabricated in the setting. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's like any fiction. It comes from, from your life, from what you've been exposed to, from maybe your walk that afternoon before you sat down and started writing. Characters are definitely a compilation of people we've met, and they say that every character has a little bit of ourselves in it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard it. Anyway, to more directly answer that question, I'd say the situations in the stories, as appalling as they are, are probably maybe 95% situations that are happening around the world in one religious cult or another. Worse things happen than what I feel (laughs) I can include in a fiction story and still have some humor in the story and happy endings. But what I, yes, it's right, what I have written, some of it's pretty appalling and hard to believe and yet has been confirmed by more than one person. What are some examples of what are true in cults uh, that you have in your books? Wow, I'm trying to think what is and isn't. Um, I'll start with love bombing. And that's a term that's used, like I mentioned the young man, uh, college age, that had broken up with his girlfriend or she'd broken up with him. And then he was loved bombed by all these other girls who invited him to a weekend um, where he, oh, everybody just was his friend and buddy and made him feel so welcome. So that's an example of <laughs> from a person's life that's used in the book where the heroine is welcomed so warmly by everybody and she's taken to um, get new clothes a new look with a new hairdo, a full new wardrobe, a place to live. Uh, Walking out of jail, she had nothing except the clothes she walked in with because she'd been kicked out of her apartment, been living on the street. So she was given everything she needed to live at that time, including a whole new set of friends who uh, cheered her arrival and made her feel very special. So that's love bombing. Another aspect that seems to be extremely true of any group is the control of every aspect of a person's life, from where they go to school, when they go to school. Some groups don't even educate the children. Some only educate the boys, and that's totally at the cult leader's discretion. Um, The parents don't have a say. But where a person works is controlled, where they live, who they live with, what car they drive. Many groups control what people eat or don't eat. Uh, Some of them are very, um, what's the word, they limit 
the food options. Uh, others, it's how often they go to meetings and what happens at those meetings, who they sit with. A real common practice, which seems kind of crazy, that I incorporate in the book is changing the followers' names. I think that has to do with stealing their identity from them. Take away their name, take away their family. That's very common to separate them from their families and just pull them from their background and um, give them a new a new identity, a, a new world, a, you know, a new environment, new friends. Just totally separate them from who they were and turn them into a puppet to be used for the leader's causes, um, which usually or often start as worthy, good causes, changing the world one way or another, but oftentimes end up being filling the leader's pockets and making them comfortable and in every way possible. Well, and not just comfortable. I mean, these leaders, the ones we have known or know of, is just plain opulence. They're, they're wealthy beyond anything we know. <laughs> Which I guess that doesn't say much. <laughs> yeah, like that Rajneesh guy in Oregon who had, I think it was 93 Rolls Royces. And uh, I have seen pictures of that group, and uh, the people all kind of tended to wear the same colors of clothes, kind of pinkish or orangish, whatever. And then they'd go out to watch him drive his cars. <laughs> I can't remember how many times a day, but that's that's crazy. <laughs> And that, that they could be thrilled that he's driving or owns 93 of those, besides, you know, naming a town after him and uh, all the rest that went with his wealth. You've probably heard the stories of this man, but th this goes on and on. And you can talk about Scientology and the incredible wealth there and many, many other groups like that. Should have called that Oregon guy Royce. <laughs> uh, in your books, some characters tend to be readers' favorites, like Dimple. I mean, really, in the Kate Nielsen series, who didn't wait for a line from Dimple? <laughs> and in this uh, series, Myrtle May and Sebastian, uh, how do you create these individuals? Well, I have to say that Dimple, which is spelled with a Y, D-Y-M-P-L-E, which is a big deal in the book. That came from an obituary I read, I think when we lived in Arizona, and some little local paper had that name. And so actually, she started from the name. <laughs> Just seemed to have to be a, a good character to go along with that name. And yeah, I think, I think I fell in love with her, as did many, many readers who've told me that. And then Sebastian and Myrtle May in my current series, I think they're just kind of compilations of people I knew growing up in Wyoming that 
I didn't think about it at the time that they were, you know, real characters, but their way of talking and their feisty natures and uh, just there there are probably dozens of people all put together, but, you know, maybe some of my uncles, aunts and uncles really, would fit into those two personalities. Myrtle May, actually that character in my head originally was going to be like a lady who lived down the street from us when I grew up in a small Wyoming town. It, it was sad. She lived in the basement, oh, probably about a block and a half away. Um, and it was the kind, it didn't have a cellar door where you had to push it up and out, but it, it did have a door where you had to walk down steps to open it to her little place in the basement, and it was not a nice basement. It was old. I think it wasn't just dirt, at least. It wasn't just a crawl space or a cellar. I think it actually had walls, but it wasn't much. Anyway, her family didn't, that lived upstairs, who lived upstairs, they didn't take good care of her, and she'd come to our house, and my mother was so good to her, and she'd feed her a meal and send her home with eggs or bread or whatever and she always gave the lady it was just this cute little thing but she always gave her the cartoons the funnies from the newspaper that was the bright spot in her life so that was going to be the person in the backyard of the cult leader that uh, I created and it was going to be kind of sad, and she was going to be all alone. And um, But somehow she just morphed into a much more feisty, or is feistier the word, a feistier character. And that made her more fun. And even though she was somewhat at her daughter's mercy, her daughter being the cult leader, she also knew what she was doing. And she she had her own story, her own life going. So she was fun to create. For our listeners, what are warning signs they can watch out for in an organization? Well, I have several lists in front of me um, by people who have compiled what they think are their top 10 or top 20 uh, red flags to watch out for. I'm going to use one from Mary DeMuth, which is focused on ministries, um, what she calls spiritually abusive ministries. Number one, they have a distorted view of respect. They forget the simple adage that respect is earned, not granted. Abusive leaders demand respect without having earned it by good, honest living. Her second red flag is they demand allegiance as proof of a follower's allegiance to Christ. So if you deviate from obeying the leader, then you're deviating from Jesus. Number three, they use exclusive language. They say, we're the only ministry that's really following Jesus. We have all the right theology. So you have to believe their way is the right way to do things and to believe it's the only correct way. Everyone else is wrong, misguided, or or just naive. And as we said earlier, um, 
uh, with some groups, then everyone else is going to hell, except their small little group of people. Number four, they create a culture of fear and shame. Often there is no grace for someone who fails to live up to the church's or the ministry's expectations. So that's that's a really sad, well, they're all sad, but um, just that constant need to try to measure up. Number five, they often have a charismatic leader at the helm who starts off well, but slips into arrogance, protectionism, and pride. And from what I've read, um, the people who tend to slip are are narcissists, um, that it really it is all about them, and that uh, they need that group around them to um, admire them and to obey them. And it's sad when that happens in a group, especially in a church, that's supposed to help people um, become all their all God means them to be, not to put them in a mold to do exactly what one person wants of them. Number six, they cultivate a dependence on one leader or leaders for spiritual information. Personal discipleship is not encouraged. Often the Bible gets pushed away to the fringes unless the main leader is teaching it. And that's one thing I emphasized in the books, that um, Bible reading is is not uh, high on the, uh, it's not on their to-do list, put it that way. Number seven, they demand blind servitude of their followers, but they live prestigious, privileged lives. And we've talked about that. Number eight, the leader buffers himself or herself from criticism by placing people around themselves whose only allegiance is to the leader. I'm not sure we've talked about this yet, but having a group of yes men and yes women around the leader is extremely crucial because um, they can, as this says, be the buffer and be special, and and there are special rewards too. Uh, So that's something to watch out for. Like we mentioned, this pastor and his buddy, the treasurer, you know, that's, that's a red flag. Number nine, they hold to outward performance but reject authentic spirituality. The leader places burdens on followers to act a certain way, dress an acceptable way, and have an acceptable lifestyle. But that's not necessarily how they live. And number 10, use of exclusivity for allegiance. Followers close to the leader or leaders feel like lucky insiders. Everyone else is on the outside. And yet those people on the outside long to be on the inner circle. So that kind of fits with the previous one. There are many other lists, but this one will just give you an idea what to watch out for. If someone suspects their church or their self-help group or any organization they're part of as being or becoming cultish, what should they do? Should they call the police? (laughs) If only it were that simple. Sometimes, in some cases, the local authorities are actually owned or, or controlled by the cult if they have used their power in that manner. But I think from... What I read, it could, if you're in a group that, say, um, I've heard of 
Alcoholics Anonymous groups that have gotten a little too tight or um, a prayer group. You, you talk to the leadership and say, you know, I see these warning signs. If in a church, say, the, the leader doesn't hear you or even tries to kick you out, then it's good to talk with the board if there is such a thing. Um, you know, there's that fine line between gossip and what do we do, helping others see the red flags. Um, so there's there's steps that can be taken, but you know, most important is like I knew a friend who came into an inheritance, and all of a sudden the church board decided that they they needed she was single and they needed more control of her life and her money, and she fled the situation. So there are times when you just need to escape. But, you know, nowadays we can search online. A lot of people we've talked about didn't have that option. So you you go to other people, you go to um, even a counselor or, I don't know, possibly another church and just ask questions or compare. Tell readers about the next two books in the series, and they should be out within the next two months. Well, they should be out within the next two months. <laughs> Book two is finished and um, just about to be released, and it deals with um, the main character, Cassie, her ongoing life in the religious cult. She almost escaped, but she's back in and um, struggling to just to stay on her feet. Uh, she wants so desperately to graduate from the rehab program and resume her former life um, of entertaining on the music circuit. And so that's um, the ongoing struggle, I guess, with some pretty severe ups and downs, uh, which I will not reveal here. And then in the third book, um, things go from bad to worse. And But like I always say, I promise a happy ending. All right, so you have written two series, and I have to wonder, what's next? <laughs> what's next? Oh, no. <laughs> a very long vacation. I'm, I'm planning to go to the Bahamas. I don't know about you, dear. <laughs> I've taken two years to write these books, but... I uh, have been putting out one a month and actually have not finished writing the last one. So it has been um, a pretty regimented <laughs> several weeks trying to stay on top of this. Um, what I'm toying with, though, is the idea of delving further into the stories of some of the people I've talked with um, and haven't even included aspects of their stories in mine because they're they're just kind of mind-boggling. So there are two people I have in mind so far to uh, just kind of pick their brains if they'll allow me and maybe just to put out some little vignettes of true stories of um, the situation inside the cult 
and why they got out, uh, how they got out. It usually involves an escape. People just don't walk away. And what their life has been like after, because there's a saying that, how does it go? You can take the person out of the cult, but you can't take the cult out of the person. So I'd like to kind of probe that a little further, or probe the people's minds a little further that have experienced that. Why don't you read a little bit from Shattered Dream? I'm going to read a few pages from the first chapter, from the beginning, and you'll hear pages turning because I'm actually using the paper copy. (laughs) Eight orange-clad women, nine, including myself, are waiting to use one of two phones. I'm the last inmate in the slow-moving line. Like the others, I've been standing on the linoleum-covered cement floor for almost an hour. I shift my weight to the other foot. My feet ache, my back spasms. The jail-issue boots don't help. I'd love to sit, but the only chairs in the room are the stools attached to the phone kiosks. We're not allowed to plop on the floor. The women grumble and gossip or fidget with their hair and stare at the wall. Two of them argue in hushed tones about who got there first. We're all anxious to connect with the outside world. And we're all frustrated with the newcomer who's exceeded the 10-minute call limit by two minutes and shows no sign of hanging up. The inmate ahead of me, a gaunt, gray-haired woman, turns. Her dull eyes, pinpointed by tangled wrinkles, are unreadable. Contempt curls her creased lips. She aims a thumb at the newcomer and through broken yellow teeth rasps, she'll learn. Her smoker's breath assaults my sinuses. We've just come from the yard where twice a day she chain smokes and I walk the track. Stifling a cough, I glance at the guard standing inside the doorway. But he doesn't care how long we talk or what we say. He's only there to keep the peace. The residents of Gallatin County Detention Center are the ones who enforce a 10-minute maximum and discourage those who monopolize the phones from repeating the infraction. They'll deliver a crystal-clear message to the new woman tonight, a message she'll remember for a long time. If nothing else, she'll learn not all rules are written. For the umpteenth time, I check the big black-rimmed clock that hangs above the phones. An hour and five minutes of afternoon phone time left. The new girl has now talked 13 minutes. Snuggled into the booth, the phone pressed against her cheek. She's probably whispering sweet nothings to her boyfriend. The other caller, a big muscular woman who works out every day in the weight room, sits ramrod straight on her stool. Elbow out, she grips the phone like a weapon and nods her head in short bursts, as if answering questions. She's either taking care of business or speaking with a lawyer. I'd bet my last chocolate bar her call will be short. The small room is warm, as always. I close my eyes and fan my face with my hand. But at the sound of footsteps behind me, I pivot, having learned long ago to watch my back. Several clones of myself, women wearing orange T-shirts tucked into elastic waist pants of the same lovely hue, drift into the room on their sturdy brown boots. My cellmate, Serena, is one of them. She lifts her chin in greeting and resumes talking to Nelda, her latest best friend. I don't care who Serena has for friends. However, she and Nelda are both heroin addicts who talk nonstop about how much they itch for another fix, an obsession that's not aiding their recovery. One inmate has a bounce to her step. She stops two feet from me 
grinning like I'm her latest best friend. I backstep to regain my personal space. Hi, my name is Roxy, she says. I'm from right here in good old Bozeman, Montana. She giggles like she told me a joke. Born and raised here. I give her the once-over. Must be new. She's entirely too happy. Newbie inmates either keep to themselves, cry all the time, or try too hard to fit in. Roxy, whom I immediately dub Rookie Roxy, is perky and cute, despite the sores on her face and the shadows beneath her red eyes. She doesn't look old enough to be incarcerated with adults. But then, I've seen plenty of 18- and 19-year-olds in the women's facility. At 28, I'm not that much older, yet some days I feel I belong in the nursing home with my grandma. Alcohol can do that to a person. Roxy extends her hand, expecting a handshake, I assume. I ignore it. Touching is against the rules at GCDC. I'm new here, she says. Yep, and still high or in shock from your arrest. I catch a whiff of stale perfume, another clue she recently came from the outside. She grabs the ID card hanging from my neck. Cassie Anita True. That's a nice name. Roxy is lucky I'm not the volatile type. Some inmates would knock her hand away, breaking a finger or two in the process. Remember the rules, I say. Hands to yourself. Sorry, she drops the ID. I forgot. Happens to all of us. I peek at the guard to see if he noticed. He didn't. And tell her, you can call me Cat. She glances from my ID to my face. That's, uh, different. My initials. Oh, she giggles again. I get it. Without pause, she adds, you're so exotic. What's your nationality? You jump in with both feet, don't you? She gives me a funny look. I don't bother to explain. The girl apparently has no filters. My mother is Jamaican, I tell her, and my father is French-Canadian. Before she can ask if I grew up in Jamaica, France, or Canada, I add, they live in Oregon. One of the bickering women shouts the B word. I twist in time to see her shove the other woman who swears and pushes her against the wall. The rest of us step away. Jailhouse squabbles can escalate to the hair-pulling, eye-clawing stage in a nanosecond. Fists clenched, the enraged duo stand nose-to-nose, screaming expertise at each other. The room reverberates with their screeches. I cover my ears. The guard does an about-face, his jaw hard as stone, and strides toward the red-faced pair. I silently plead for him not to kick us all out. She started it, yells one of the women, waving her arms. No, I didn't, shrieks the other. She did. He raises a palm, and they hush, arms stiff fists tight. I clasp my hands. The room is so quiet I can hear my heartbeat. The guard calls in their names and booking numbers on his radio, tells them they can't use the phones for a week, and orders them to return to their cells. Another guard is waiting for them at the door. I rub my sweaty hands on my pants. Maybe I'll get to talk with my parents after all. This could be my last chance. The line shuffles forward. If the smell that now permeates the room is any clue, I'm not the only one traumatized by the outburst. The weightlifter slams the phone and stops away. Another inmate quickly takes her place. We have to act fast. Sometimes people jump ahead and grab a phone the instant it touches the cradle. The inmate who was monopolizing the telephone stumbles past. Tears drip from her cheeks, forming dark splotches on her orange T-shirt. Along with heartbreak, she's sure to suffer physical consequences for that long call. I'm tempted to pat her shoulder, but I don't. Now, only three residents stand in front of me. Behind me, Roxy is chatting with another inmate. I'm glad she found someone else to talk to. 
I'm about to leave GCDC, and I don't need anyone bent on self-destruction in my life. Like others I've met in jail, she's too much like the old me. To be honest, I can't say the classes and therapy sessions here have transformed me, but they help. I try to believe I'm in transition, eager to move on and anxious to meet the new cat. Despite my best intentions, however, the transitioning me struggles with random alcohol cravings. This is one of those occasions. I've learned to search for the source of my need, or my alleged need, as a jail counselor regularly reminds me. My guess is the current trigger is either boredom or anxiety. Probably anxiety. That's partially due to the fight, but mostly because I'm excited to tell my parents my good news. For too long, I've been their bad news daughter. All right, that gives listeners a pretty good idea, at least the start of the story. And ebooks are available wherever you get ebooks, anywhere online. And the paper copy, the paper book, is available from Amazon. And that's going to be our podcast this time. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, remember you two have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.